You feel comfortable talking about it? Yeah, I don't mind talking about it. I'm actually kind of proud of it in a perverse way. Uh, most people don't get shingles <laughs> until they're at least 60 years old. Uh, I've already had it twice. <laughs> uh, I don't know why. I guess uh, I don't know. I'm particularly susceptible. But I had it. I had it in for for whatever reason. I've heard it's like triggered by like stress and anxiety. Yeah, and stuff well, like that. Is that true? It is. I don't respond that well to stress and anxiety I mean, you know like that's always sort of but you're not dealing with like unusual amounts right now no um i mean i was a little bit stressed out but not that much uh but yeah i mean the first time i had it was in third grade and i can't imagine that i was all that stressed in third grade <laughs> you had shingles in the third yeah. grade is that does that that happens yeah i guess so um i you know i had Chicken pox in kindergarten and then shingles in third grade. And uh, hmm. now I have it again. So, yeah, I guess I just get it a lot. Somebody told me that if you get the vaccine, though, uh, it keeps it from coming back. I'm not sure if that's true or not. So I'm going to I'm going to look into that because uh, I. it seems like a good thing for you I to don't look want into, it. given your. Yeah, again, it, it's it's awful. It uh, So the. The weird thing about shingles is like, you know, if you have like a muscle pain or like a bone pain from a bo broken bone or something, like you can usually adjust your body into a position to minimize the pain uh, from like the load or the, you know, like stress you're putting on something. But with shingles, it's a, it's a nerve pain, which I don't think I've ever really experienced. And so it's basically just random firing of nerves. And it feels like you're getting cracked in the head <laughs> with a hammer by like this invisible, like little demon or something. Like it's just, it's just completely random. Like there's, you know. That sounds awful. It was, it was really that, bad. Yeah. Uh, I was in the uh, emergency room and then like in an urgent care um, I got a shot in my butt for the first time. I've never had to do that. Oh yeah. I've had one of those. I had one of those in China. Oh yeah. <laughs> for what? <laughs> the most miserable sickness I've ever had. Oh. Yeah. Some kind of strange infection. Yeah. That's a story for another podcast. Welcome to Zero Sum Empire, the podcast that's taking a critical census of the 540 mostly anonymous American billionaires. Hello, everyone. I'm Joe. I'm Chad. Welcome back or welcome here for the first time. Um, episode nine. Episode nine. Yeah, our numbers are going up. I think we uh, we cracked 100 for the first time and then, uh, and then it, that feels it accelerated good. beyond that. We're about to crack 150. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm happy about that. Uh, Joe set a goal of a, a thousand listeners by the end of the year. I think we can do it. Um, yeah. So uh, please, uh, as always, like, subscribe, uh, leave reviews on iTunes. Although I, I don't know if we can say that anymore. Did you see that Apple is retiring iTunes? It's a uh, they're de what? decataloging. Uh, I don't know what they call it. Uh, they're just they're getting rid of it. No more iTunes. What, what what happens to our show? <laughs> uh, I think it's called Apple Podcasts now, and uh, and I, I my I don't know what they're going to do. Uh, I didn't really look into it at all, but uh, I imagine that they're going to release a, a sort of updated Apple Music that has some capacity to store and organize files uh, outside of like the Apple Music streaming service. That would be my guess. I don't know. 
Okay, so each week on the show, we spend a little bit of time talking about billionaires in the news. You ready for that? Yeah, that sounds good. Billionaires in the news. So our original idea for billionaires in the news before Chad got shingles <laughs> was <laughs> to talk about Mark Stevens, the billionaire who owns an 8% stake in the Golden State Warriors who pushed Kyle Lowry during an NBA Finals game uh, a little bit, I guess, less than two weeks ago. Why did he do that? I, I guess because he's not a nice person. <laughs> I mean, I don't, like, I, I don't know. I mean, you can go and watch the video. Lowry jumps into the stands chasing a ball or there's some sort of scrambly play. And Mark Stevens leans over a seat just to give him a shove that's totally <laughs> unnecessary. <laughs> and apparently, according to Lowry, he was also saying something profane to him. So, you know, it sparked this big moment where Lowry was complaining and ultimately the the league had to step in. Mark Stevens has, has been fined $500,000 and banned from uh, <laughs> NBA games for a year. Oh, just for a year? people, some people, yeah, some people think that, that he got off with a light sentence, but that's a that's a week and a half ago. So I don't think we're, that's going to be really the billionaires in the news this week. But we just wanted to like mention it because it seems so egregious and 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 good for this segment. What we are going to talk about? What are we going to? We're talking about that WhatsApp guy. Yeah, Jan right? Coom. Um, I was immediately like repulsed uh, when Joe sent me this article that was. Uh, about an $80 million home that he purchased uh, in Atherton, California. Um, he's a, you know, he's he's pretty high up there on the billionaire list. Uh, I, I, I think he's worth like $9 billion. Yeah, it's, it's a, a substantial sum. Um, he, uh, he, when he resigned from uh, WhatsApp uh, after Facebook bought them, he said he stated that he was a, uh, you're talking about this Facebook yeah, post? Yeah, he was leaving to collect <laughs> rare air-cooled Porsches and play Ultimate Frisbee, uh, which sounds like the the worst, uh, you know, like most douchey thing that you could possibly uh, say. Um, but, like, I, like I, you know, I want to get to, I, like, I don't think that I uh, respect his choices, but there is something refreshing about his uh, embrace of like stupid decadence just like the like the dumbest uh like most two-dimensional kind of like hobby uh that you could have which is like buying expensive porsches <laughs> and um like he yeah. he's you know uh like i when we like deal with these billionaires like they're they're so self-important and and so invested in convincing everyone that they have something uh very wise and insightful to say about the world and about uh you know i don't know about technology and 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 business and all of these things this guy he's just like i don't know i'm dropping out and i just want to collect cars and uh play frisbee <laughs> like yeah yeah so you know like there's something yeah, to it. Yeah, I guess. I mean, the, you know, there's also obviously like, you know, the, the kind of um, conspicuous consumption of buying all these, you know, high 
price tag items. I'm not saying it's okay. Right. I'm just saying there's something. Yeah, to it. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's at, it's at least different than most of the people we've been running into. But I, I went I went pretty deep on this guy in the sense that I listened to uh, the one podcast appearance I could find that he made on Spike's Car Radio, uh, which, as far as I can tell, isn't really. Uh, primarily about cars. I haven't listened to any other episodes, but all of the other ones are interviews with comedians, many of whom collect cars. I mean, obviously Jerry Seinfeld and Jay Leno and like all of these people. We're going to talk a little bit about Seinfeld later. Oh, really? Okay. Um, uh, so I, I listened to the entire episode uh, where they were. Uh, it was it was titled uh, the Jan Coom Collection, uh, where they went over only the uh, the cars that he was currently auctioning off uh, because he has uh, like two to four of every uh, model that he buys, and <clears throat> he uh, he wants like a backup, like for parts. I, well. You know, I don't really know much about, no, not definitely not for parts. Uh, I don't know much about car collecting, um, but what these guys do or what I gathered from this podcast episode, they don't drive them, right? Like they'll buy this super rare Porsche and uh, like he paid $60,000 for a paint upgrade of like a rare color, you know, uh, from the manufacturer and like they'll buy them and they're new. These aren't like, you know, old timey collector cars like some of them are, but like mostly it seems like he's buying new cars produced at the Porsche factories and like getting every option and like, you know, the more rare it is, the better. And then he just doesn't drive them, right? Like he, like these guys will, uh, they just leave the stickers on them. And part of the selling point, I guess, when they auction them is like, uh, you know, they were like geeking out, like, oh my God, this car has less than 40 miles on it. (laughs) So they just, they don't even seem to enjoy them. I, I guess they drive other, you know, parts of their collection, but, but a large part of them, they just sort of like buy them and put them in a garage. It's the idea that they'll increase in value if... I don't think so. No. Um, I think the idea is they, they create a collection to, uh, to exhibit their individual tastes, you know? So like they had in the podcast, they had all of these like really involved arguments about like which colors they prefer, uh, and why. And they do all of these like little adjustments, like, uh, uh, Jan Coom calls it uh, factory radio delete. You know, he, so he orders the car without a radio because he thinks it makes <laughs> the experience uh. of the car purer or something. I guess it's very weird. So it's, you know, it's like stamp collecting for people, for like billionaires. Who are you talking about this week, Joe? I am going to be talking about Tom and Judy Love, who are the owners of Love's Travel Stops and Country Stores. So Tom and Judy Love are self-made billionaires, uh, and their, their main entrepreneurial innovation was figuring out that it would be a good idea in the early 1970s to merge self-serve gas stations and convenience stores. So, Wait, what? In 1970 so in 1971, the year that the Loves started to grow their business, just 7% of all convenience stores sold gas. What? They like invented the concept? I mean, it was uh, I guess sort of 
around, but it hadn't been exploited huh. yet. I think love the the story that Love likes to tell that I heard him tell in at least one interview is that he sort of had this idea, and this was sort of what sparked the 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 vision for the business. So in 1969, only 2,500 gas stations had self serve pumps. So he he sort of was like, all right, I'm going to bring self-serve gas stations and convenience stores together. And so uh, today, the number of convenience stores that sell fuel um, totals over 21, uh, over 121,000 locations, stores, and about 80% of all convenience stores uh now sell gas. It's almost weird when you see one that doesn't sell gas. Like we had a seven, you know, like, you know, not in a city, but, uh, you know, I grew up in a kind of uh, suburb outside of Pittsburgh and we had a Seven Eleven that didn't sell gas. And it's like the only one in the town, I think, that. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess Seven Elevens often don't sell gas. Yeah. Right? I think they usually don't. Yeah. Seven Eleven's a holdout. I don't know. In any event, first of all, information about the Love family is is predictably scarce. Uh, as far as the internet seems to know, Judy Love has only been captured on video twice. <laughs> <laughs> She's like a Siberian lynx or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Once is for her acceptance speech at the 2010 Oklahoma Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Oklahoma Hall of Fame? Yeah, I guess the Loves are are now part of the Oklahoma Hall of Who fame. else is in there? <laughs> I don't know. We can go look into that at a certain point. Um, but so there's two videos on online <clears throat> with a record of this speech. One is a 38 second excerpted version of the speech, which as of this morning had 22 views. <laughs> <laughs> and there's another uh, two minute and 28 second version that's her full remarks which as of this morning had nine views, <laughs> including me. Including you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so <clears throat> the second event resulting in video evidence of Judy Love is a far, far more uh, popular event. Um, and this is a brief clip from an NBA game, Oklahoma City Thunder versus the Cavs in February 2016. Uh, it was it was a game that was happening at home in Oklahoma City, where Judy Love is in the front row cheering on the Thunder. And at a certain point during the game, a mic picks up Judy Love taunting LeBron James. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is so she like eighty five years old? She yeah, she's like she's about eighty. <laughs> uh, and this is it's pretty great. <laughs> There's a. A video segment on the fumble that covers this moment and the beginning of their little newscast segment. They start, there are few people in the world who would feel entitled enough to talk down to LeBron James. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you go online uh, and Google Judy Love, by far the the most publicity she's ever had is for telling LeBron James to suck it up. Suck it up, LeBron. <laughs> uh, LeBron uh, responded to this moment on Instagram. And that's that's all I could really find out about Judy. <laughs> <laughs> So Tom Love's on online presence is 
somewhat more pronounced, but also a little weirder in certain ways. I, I don't know. Uh, I, um, first of all, do you know what a Google knowledge panel is? Uh, no. <laughs> it sounds <laughs> fake. <laughs> it's real. It's all too real. I just want to digress for like a minute to talk shit about the Google knowledge panel. <laughs> so, so <laughs> Google knowledge panel is that little box on the right hand portion of the screen that uh, after you do a perform a Google search, it will digest certain oh, yeah, pieces yeah. of information okay. about the person and, and give you a little sort of like snapshot right. of what this person is all about. So, okay. So if you Google Tom Love today, um, the first picture that will come up next to what is Tom Love's actual bio is the picture of a different Tom Love, <laughs> some, some software development guy who's like affiliated with Carnegie Mellon and some other things. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, it's the wrong picture. That's fine. But, you know, a very simple Google image search produces at least nine distinct images <laughs> of the billionaire Tom Love. <laughs> and only one picture of the software development, software developer Tom Love. So just by sheer percentages, you have a 90% chance of getting it right, Google. Yeah. That's <laughs> messed know? up. And if you follow uh, the images down, the next like 20 of them are Tom from Tom and Jerry with uh, big hearts in his eyes. It's like Tom, Tom okay. being in love. <laughs> okay. So this is a, this is a pretty good segue. Um, because all of this sort of leads me to a more personal beef with the Google knowledge panel, which is this. Um, okay. I don't Google myself all the time or even often, but I, I have Googled myself <laughs> recently. <laughs> uh, and the deal with Googling yourself, if you're me and your name is Joe Bookman, is that your main competition for internet visibility in the world is with a Seinfeld character. Oh yeah. And I've been I've been battling with Joe Bookman the library cop now for years. <laughs> That's a great internet <laughs> double to have though. Like that well, I love that guy. It, what uh, what's the actor's it's, name? It's certain moments I've been doing better, but right now I'm really losing. <laughs> you know, I'm losing kind of bad. <laughs> oh yeah, Philip Philip Baker um, Hall. He's a great character actor. Well, so okay, so if you google me today and the 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 Google knowledge panel appears, the person that you'll see is Philip Baker Hall under uh, under actor, but beneath that, oh yeah, is a is the title of a film that I, I made. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it's completely messed up. Whoa! Did you see that? There, there's a button that says "Claim This Knowledge Panel" underneath. Yeah, I saw that. Do do? I don't know what to do with that. If I were you, I would just use the image of Philip Baker Hall. Um. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's certainly not doing me any sort of um, damage. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Anyway, it's just kind of silly that it's sort of like, have you ever been to this site, mylife.com? No. It, it says a similar thing where it sort of digests information from across the internet. And it'll basically create these sort of like hodgepodge bios where they're bringing together different 
pieces of 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 biographical information with people who have the same name and creating these sort of Frankenstein perf- personas. Um, I don't know if this is just a moment, just sort of a flickering moment at, 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 at this point in the history of the internet, if we're going to still be dealing with this kind of thing in five years. I love that. I love the idea that I, I, I could uh, <clears throat> like fuse in a Borg-like way on the internet with everyone who shares my name. <laughs> we could just have a single <laughs> bio that covered all of us. <laughs> you have sort of an unusual name. That's true. I think there is one more of me somewhere else, uh, I think in Canada. Okay. So as far as Tom Love goes and his video presence, <laughs> there are a few videos that the Love's Travel Stop Communications team has put out uh, on the Love's Travel Stop YouTube channel. <laughs> so a couple of interviews with Tom, a video about the Love family giving $5 million donation to a new innovation hub at the University of Oklahoma, which it's incidentally uh, is located uh, within the Michael F. Price College of Business. Uh, so there's yeah. that connection there from a previous episode. We've had a lot of Oklahoma people so far. Yeah. I don't know what the deal is with that. Energy. There's a lot of fracking oil uh, people okay. who are going to come up, like my guy today. That makes some sense. Um, but other than this, other than these videos that the Love's company has put out to promote their own brand, the only other videos that you'll find of Tom Love on the internet are on, you'll never guess this, the Chickasaw TV website. <laughs> which which honestly just took me a second to figure out what was going on with this. Uh, because um, at this point, Chad, you probably Googled Tom Love on the other end. Like you see, he just looks like, you know, your average 80 year old uh, white Republican from Oklahoma, which mm-hmm. he is. <clears throat> um, but he's also a member of the Chickasaw Nation and a, uh, a, a recent inductee to the Chickasaw Hall of Fame. So I don't know. This was like a new kind of like learning opportunity for me. I didn't really understand (laughs) how people got citizenship to uh, or tribal affiliations in the modern day. So it sort of looked into this a little bit. Do you know anything about this? Is this like seem unusual to you that that Tom Love is a, a member of the Chickasaw Nation? Um, no, I mean, um, I was sort of like looking at a, a picture of a yacht while you were talking, so I might've lost the thread. You can cut that out, but, um, <laughs> but my, <laughs> my understanding, like I, you know, like a lot of, uh, people will, uh, uh, claim, uh, tribal affiliation, uh, to start casinos and, uh, uh, and things like that. Is it related to that? Yeah. Well, I mean, sort of. I mean, I think people have all different sorts of reasons or possible incentives for wanting to um, prove their uh, native ancestry. But different tribes have different rules that make it more or less difficult to join the tribe. So anyway, Tom's ancestral story is that he has actually two different ancestors on different sides of his family, both with the name Love. Let that sink in. That's pretty weird. Yeah. Yeah. So why? So, okay. So you saw him on Chickasaw TV. What's he doing on there? He's basically, you know, he's talking about how 
the Chickasaw Nation is great and how they're a very entrepreneurial tribe and how uh. he's promoting the sort of business spirit that's inherent in, in his, I don't know, you can go read about it. That's just super annoying. Let's maybe move on and just talk a little bit about convenience, conven- the convenience industry in yeah. America. So here's an interesting statistic. About half of the United States population shops at a convenience store every day. Okay. So that's a lot of people. That's a big business. Does that include buying gasoline? Do you know? Yeah. I mean, of course it includes that. Yeah. Okay. I guess that makes sense. Cigarettes. That's a big one. I mean, there's there's a lot of things that people buy at convenience stores. <laughs> um, if you were looking for a valuable resource for information about convenience stores, look no further than NECS. The National Association of Convenience Stores, <laughs> which is a trade group <laughs> representing convenience store owners and gasoline re- retailers. Oh, my God. It, they really missed an opportunity there. If they could have found a way to put an S on the front <laughs> and call the Convenience Store Association snacks. That's true. That's true. That's a swing and a miss. Uh, <laughs> um, incidentally, Nax has a podcast <laughs> wow. Called I mean, con- who doesn't have a podcast? Called Convenience Matters with like 170 <laughs> plus episodes. But there's just another one of these things is as we get farther along this path, it's like they've got like so many more listeners than us. <laughs> <laughs> it's like if we can't at some point start to compete with a, a <laughs> convenience store <laughs> trade group podcast <laughs> like they're crushing us so it's like i've got my <laughs> i've got my sights set on those flat earth guys and knacks <laughs> okay so what do they talk about they like, talk about everything related to your convenience store needs i mean they're basically giving you a bunch of data about consumer behavior among other things that, you know, they're sort of representing the interests of this industry and trying to educate uh, store owners and people involved in the business on how to do business better. So <clears throat> one interesting document, the, you know, the the <clears throat> marijuana legalization uh, or recreational marijuana legalization that's happening in a lot of states has to be a real boon to the convenience industry. Um, <clears throat> I wonder if Nax has addressed that on the podcast. Um like like snack sale performance in legal versus <laughs> that's interesting I, I didn't see anything about that <laughs> but uh i didn't do a thorough investigation <laughs> you didn't listen to all 170 episodes <laughs> no. of the max cast i scanned so i, I tuned into a couple <laughs> <laughs> um there there's one interesting document online that i'm going to uh, highlight a few details from um and this is uh, the nine habits of gas buying customers. And <laughs> there's one big sort of takeaway that I wanted to get to with this, but it, it, it's a document on the next website. Perhaps we'll link to it. Um, that has some, some more or less uninteresting facts about consumer behavior at gas stations. So for example, midday is the most popular time of day for people to, 
fill up their tanks. Um, people rely largely on the gas price sign for determining which gas station they're likely to go to. Okay, all of that's kind of not so surprising. But here, here's an interesting set of facts that in conjunction, I think, are sort of mildly revelatory. So, okay, 78% of people pay for gas with credit or debit cards. Okay, that seems about right. Mm -hmm. So if you pay, I didn't find a precise data point on, on the percentage of people who pay at the pump versus paying inside. But bear with me here because we can we can just sort of assume that certainly a significant percentage of those people who are paying for gas with credit or debit cards are paying right there at the pump because it's so convenient. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the next next important fact to keep track of: almost half of of all gas buying customers go inside the store. So most people are using credit cards or debit cards, so they don't have to go inside the store, but almost half of gas buying customers do go inside the store. Okay. Like interesting fact number three that sort of brings this whole point home. Uh, answering the question, what's the most important factor in selecting where to buy gas? The percentage of people who answer quality of in-store items is 3%. <laughs> so, so... Basically, the number of people who go to gas stations based on what's inside the store is negligible, but a yeah. large percentage of people wind up going inside the store for whatever reason and buying something. And half of all Americans are going to a con convenience store every day. So my, my, my point is like droves and droves and droves of people are being funneled into this environment <laughs> where there's just garbage, <laughs> where they, where, where they had no, They're like, I don't care what it is. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's, I just need some treats. I just need to be just inside in here. My face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that is really weird. Which seems kind of interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, some portion of those people are, are buying tobacco products. Cause I, I think that like, you know, like I imagine like, you know, 80% of like tobacco sales have to be from convenience store. Maybe I'm wrong. About no, that. I mean, I but it, tobacco is big. I, I think soft drinks is the biggest. You can, these, mm. these statistics are probably not hard to get either. I don't have them right here. Um, and those, those are mostly the same. I will say that, you know, I, have Oh, I do have them right here. Oh, you do. Forty-two okay. percent of the people buy uh, soft drinks or beverages. Thirty-seven percent of people buy snacks. Twenty-three percent is lottery tickets. Twenty-one percent is cigarettes. Eleven percent grocery items. Eleven percent beer, wine. Seven percent sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I have uh I've definitely been disappointed. Uh, and chosen one convenience store over the other. So like, you know, where I work, there's like three or four, you know, within, you know, about the same inside the same radius. Well, and I have definitely chosen one over the other based on beverage selection. I mean, it's not like a, a consideration that is, doesn't exist. I mean, for example, actually one thing that came up during my research, there's a guy out there right now making a documentary about the rivalry between Sheets and Wawa in Pennsylvania. I've heard about this. Yeah, there's a uh, movie about it. So obviously, people I don't know have some uh, have some opinions about convenience stores. 
I, I just wanted to say a couple more things. I wish I had more time to do a sort of thorough analysis of the ways in which the rise of convenience stores have affected American culture or uh, maybe even more, more specifically public health, because there are clearly some connections that could be made. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I spent a little bit of time just trying to look at very basic data about like what, what are some other curves that start to, to rise in the early 1970s when convenience store culture really starts to take off. And, you know, like we're all like anybody spent any time thinking about energy consumption or carbon emissions. We, we're all sort of used to seeing these sort of like these, these curves of like exponential growth that have been taking yeah. off for um, definitely the last several decades. Some of them sort of begin um, earlier in the century, last century. But I mean, I think there's, you know, other things that are happening like in parallel to those more famous curves, you know, certainly the, the, the rise of gas stations and convenience stores, uh, diabetes rates are climbing during the same time. Although, uh, these rates began to increase sort of more rapidly in the early two thousands consumption of soybean oil begins to rise significantly in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Hmm. And while like, you know, correlation is not causation, et cetera, it's, it's hard for me to imagine that there's not some kind of relationship between the rise of convenience store culture and, and, and obviously fast food culture as well, which I don't have like hard data in front of me, um, to back up, yeah. but it seems like, I mean, yeah, I think that, yeah, I mean, there's a larger story about corn, uh, which we've talked about before. Yeah. Um, uh, becoming a kind of uh, dominant platform for uh, not only food production, but a million other, you know, non-edible products. Uh, like most of the stuff in convenience stores from the soda to the sweet treats uh, is made from corn. Um, and, uh, and so like the, the um, subsidization, is that a word? The subsidization of uh, corn agribusiness uh, that begins around the same time, uh, is certainly part of that. Um, the, uh, food production and distribution, uh, technologies that allow people to, I mean, you know, people forget that like TV dinners were not a thing before the 1950s, right? Like that, right. the sort of the packaging and shipping, um, of these kinds of foods was not something that was really possible prior to World War II. Right. And, it's uh, <clears throat> There's a, there's some other things going on with the rise of, of, of the convenience industry, you know, like, um, other factors that sort of precipitate the end of industry's growth, uh, that Nax talks about suburban sprawl, more women yeah. in the workforce, the size of grocery stores are getting bigger. And so kind of more intimidating in certain ways are just inconvenient to park and make your way through all those aisles. So all of those sort of things combined, the, the things that we think about when we think about the, the rise of suburbanization in the 1950s and whatever else, um, yeah. <clears throat> help give rise to, to, to this. Yeah. So, um, I think that's all I have to say about Tom and Judy Love. I'm talking about George Bishop this week. George um, Bishop. So I know 
approximately nothing about this person. I have spent zero time. You got to tell me what's going on. George Bishop. Well, uh, you know, you're not alone in knowing nothing about George Bishop. I know I've said this before, um, uh, but this is the most anonymous billionaire that we've had so far. (laughs) Uh, He is the only one that we've come across so far uh, that there is not an existing photo of. uh, uh, Not even... Uh, Forbes uh, was able to find a photo for their billionaire. There's no photo Uh, of this guy? There is not a single extant photo of George Bishop anywhere on the internet. I promise you that I have looked. Can I just interrupt one second and say one last thing about uh, the loves? It's just weird to me that like there's no photos of them before they're like in their 80s. (laughs) like all of the videos everything that's available is from the last few years well i mean you used to have to like pose for photos right i mean you know the the uh the sort of instantaneous uh ambient you know recording of everything is is only something that's happened in the last 10 years yeah but i mean you Um, would think that there would be some older sort of archival footage that would have been like newspaper something you know it's just not i mean maybe it's just a problem with google's algorithms i don't know Anyway, possibly. Um, uh, But uh, but, you know, uh, even professional journalistic organizations with a lot more resources than ours, uh, uh, than our amateurish uh, uh, organization uh, was unable to locate a photo of George Bishop. Uh, And there's some just really weird things, right? Like um, his uh, his his Wikipedia, his Forbes entry, uh, they they do note that he's married. Uh, but no wife's name anywhere that I could find. Uh, children uh, not listed anywhere. Um, uh, there, even his net worth is in question. He's listed as two point five billion dollars. Although uh, the in the few news articles that I found about him, people speculate that it's much higher. Uh, he's eighty two years old, and he was the founder of Geo Southern Energy. Uh, Geo Southern Energy is. Uh, as it, as you can probably guess, uh, an energy company. It focuses mainly on natural gas. Um, so started it. In, so George, yeah, so George Bishop and Tom and Judy Love have to know one another. They're like the same age. They're in the same business. They're billionaires. That's true. They're, I, you know, I imagine their their paths have probably crossed at a, you know, uh, maybe they're on the same sort of email chain uh, or something like that. But okay, um, anyway, sorry to interrupt. Um, but he is, uh, he he he's very anonymous. He started uh, Geo Southern Energy in the 1980s. Um, as of 2012, and this is why it's sort of surprising that there's absolutely no information about him. As of 2012, uh, Geo Southern was the fourth largest producer of natural gas in the United States. Um, they're, uh, they're, that's uh, pretty big. It it is pretty big. Um, and it was big enough to attract the attention of Blackstone. Uh, and in, in 2013, um, Blackstone, it's a little unclear what role Blackstone, the private equity firm that we've talked about many times, uh, played in this deal, but, uh, uh, Bishop sold 82,000 acres of land to Devon Energy, uh, which is a larger uh, energy company. And as part of that deal, Blackstone, um, you know, collected like one and a half billion dollars and the rest went to Bishop. Uh, um, And I I think they sold he sold that land for, I think, six billion dollars. And so uh, uh, so that uh, pretty much took Geo Southern off the map uh, and shot it from like 30 billion 
uh, barrels of oil equivalent. BOEs is the the unit of measurement that they use to uh, uh, compare uh, energy production. So BOE stands for barrels of oil equivalent. Okay. Um, uh, so natural gas can be expressed in BOEs. Uh, and he's like, he's like, Geo Southern is like not even on the list anymore. Uh, uh, they're, they, they're down from like 30 billion uh, BOEs to like 1.5 billion BOEs. They're in like 83rd largest producer or something now. Basically, they sold most of the business to uh, Devon Energy. Uh, so that's where his, like most of his wealth is just from a single sale of, uh, a big chunk of land to a larger energy company in 2013. One big move. Um, one big move. It kind of reminds yeah. me of Leslie Alexander selling the rockets. Yeah. Yeah. Same sort of thing. Um, and, uh, and in fact, much like, uh, 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 the, uh, the guy that we talked about, uh, at the beginning, um, uh, Jan Coom, uh, he he hasn't retired, and in fact, uh, um, uh, Geo Southern is is currently doing some like some awful stuff. But uh, but what he did do is is really focus on his retirement. Uh, so he, <laughs> he got he started, serious about it, huh? Yeah, he he started Eagleford Restaurant, which is this kind of like a you know a crappy family restaurant in his hometown. Uh, he bought River Ridge Golf Club, uh, so I guess he can golf when he wants to. And then the the biggest purchase that he made uh, after the sale uh, to Devon was uh, he bought a private island uh, called Chub K. Nice. Um, <laughs> it's a funny name. C H U B C A Y. It's part of the Bahamas. Um, it is, uh, what's really, uh, interesting about it. It's a very small private Island population, 46 people, uh, all of them workers on the Island. Uh, what's, what's very cool is that if, if we wanted to, we could go there. Uh, uh, there are a couple of very affordable Airbnbs, uh, uh, one, uh, field two, piece, man, let's do a field piece. Two, let's do a field piece, uh, $265 a night, you know? So, so he, he was one of these guys who brought up, bought a private Island, uh, mainly for sport fishing. Uh, he bought it from Scotiabank, uh, after Scotiabank took possession of the Island, uh, following a bankruptcy, uh, declared by the people who previously owned the Island. Um, uh, the Bahamas was very excited about Bishop. Uh, they, uh, are, are, you know, according to some articles I read, very anxious to get foreign direct investment in the Bahamas, uh, because obviously it means more taxes, sure. uh, fees and permits and all of this stuff. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, to some degree it means jobs. Although, as I said, there's only 46 people on the Island. Um, they're, they're trying to expand it though. Um, one thing, you know, that's pretty messed up is that as part of the sale, uh, Bishop made a deal with the prime minister, Perry Christie, uh, that, uh, for a special, special exemption for sport fishing in the South Barry Islands Marine Reserve. Um, that sounds bad. Like, uh, Bishop paid them off so that he could sport fish in a protected area, area. Um, uh, but I went on the Marine Reserve's website and it was actually pretty tough to find, what they were actually protecting. Hmm. Uh, and my suspicion is that as a money-making scheme, the government of the Bahamas made all of this, these waters around these private islands that billionaires buy a protected reserve so that they have to pay for a special exemption if they want to fish there. <laughs> so like, ah. I think that, 
You okay. know, I think that there's probably some some shady stuff going on uh, there. Although, you know, I don't. Let's I don't make know that make sure. clear. Chad has no idea what he's talking about. This is the- yeah, yeah. I mean, it it sounded pretty. It looks pretty shady to me. Um, uh, but the you know, like so, all of that stuff is pretty typical. Um, uh, but it, it does bring up an issue. Uh, um, because uh, one of the things that I noticed uh in doing this research is that after uh Bishop made the big sale to uh, Blackstone and Devon Energy, he started about 50 LLCs. Uh, he, he currently holds uh, 54 LLCs at least. Yeah. Um, and uh, this is not uncommon. It is not uncommon. Um, and, and the reasons for it are um, are not good. Um, uh, one of the reasons that uh, billionaires uh create LLCs is to hide purchases, right? And so um, uh, uh, Zillow um, uh, estimates that about a third of homes that cost over, that are sold for over $5 million are purchased through LLCs. Hmm. Um, one of the things this does is to mask the buyer. Um, <laughs> one of the, a, a very famous case of this is uh, our, our old friend, Michael Milken, uh, who bought a hundred and ten million dollar home through an LLC, trying to hide his identity? Hmm. Uh, but people found out about it almost immediately. Zuckerberg <laughs> is doing this too. Uh, he's uh, he's buying up all this land in Hawaii through LLCs. I see. Um, supposedly, you know, people can't verify. So, like, you know, part of it is is sort of like desire to remain remain anonymous. Um, but a, a big problem with this is that they're also used as uh, tax avoidance schemes. And so uh, uh, billionaires will hold different assets under different LLCs. LLC is limited liability company, just uh, to to be clear. Um, It's a pretty simple uh, maneuver. Uh, So you could think of it like imagine that you're uh, imagine you're a company with a million dollars in assets. Um, You're going to get taxed in the million dollar tax bracket. But if you divide your money up into 10 LLCs, then each of those LLCs only holds $100,000 in assets. So okay. if the tax burden on a million dollars is 25% because it's in a higher bracket, you're going to get uh, taxes levied at, say, a lower bracket if you are only, it looks like you're only holding $100,000. So you might get an effective tax rate of 20%. But that seems that like an obvious example dollars. of tax evasion. Is that legal? Yes, it's legal. We we haven't even mentioned that uh, Bishop is uh, an extractive industries billionaire, mm-hmm. um, you know. And I did a little bit of research into uh, natural gas drilling, um, uh, otherwise known as fracking. Um, and I, you know, have you ever heard uh, of the Haynesville Shale? No. Like, I feel like most people haven't. Uh, the Haynesville Shale is currently the second or third largest producer of natural gas in the U.S. behind the one that people have heard of, uh, which is the Marcellus Shale. Yeah, I have uh, heard of the Marcellus Shale. Yeah. New York and Pennsylvania. You know, right. Josh Fox made this yeah, uh, yeah, documentary's yeah. Gasland about yeah. it. Um, uh, what I think what people fail to, to appreciate is the fact that both the Marcellus and the Haynesville Shale were only discovered in 2008. Like they, people, wow. they've only been around. They've only been uh, uh, known as exploitable resources for ten years, uh, and 
the uh, uh, the Haynesville shale had like a, this uh, sort of production boom uh, between 2008 and 2012, roughly, uh, whenever they were extracting uh, the sort of low hanging fruit, the stuff that was easy to get out of the ground. Uh, and then it kind of dried up. Uh, and then uh, uh, later on, um, as of, you know, like a. Uh, let's see. I think I think just 2016 or so. There's another boom, and this is where Bishop is moving his business into now. And it's really run by the woman who is the president of the company, whose name escapes me right now. And so you know he he's you know 80 some years. He's 82 years old and and hanging out on his island, um, but still nominally the owner uh, of the company. Okay. Um, uh, the the uh, uh, so like there was a lull between say, uh, between like 2012, 2013 and like 2016 and 17, uh, when, the, when new, uh, when, when, you know, technical advances in fracking, uh, made it possible to, uh, uh, drill, uh, deeper, more efficiently and get the gas out. And there's a huge boom going on right now in the Haynesville shale. Together, uh, the Marcellus and Haynesville share are uh, producing 50 billion cubic feet of gas per day, uh, which sounds like a lot, um, but it's actually not that much compared to uh, the uh, reserves uh, that are on their way to being released in other parts of the world. So what I mean by that is that if you take the entire, uh, if you add up all of the proven natural gas reserves in the United States, it works out to about 6 million million cubic feet of gas that we know okay. is in there. We're absolutely going to extract it or, you know, like there's, there's no question to me whether, you know, if it's in there and it's already proven, we're taking it out, right? Okay. So that's that in the U.S. it has the sixth largest reserves of proven natural gas in the world. United Arab Emirates is number five. They have also about 6 million. And you kind of go up the list until you get to Qatar, number three, which has 25 million million cubic uh, feet, uh, uh, sorry, cubic meters uh, of natural gas in the ground. Russia, 32.9 hmm. million million. Hmm. And Iran, 33.6 million million uh, cubic meters of gas. So. Remember, the United States has six, right? <laughs> and Iran, Russia, and Qatar added up are about 100 million, million wow. cubic meters of natural, proven natural gas reserves that um, are absolutely going to be taken out of the ground through fracking. Um, and so, you know... It, it, I, you know, I don't, I don't mean to, you know, I, I know that, that people get upset uh, whenever one you know, it gets pessimistic about climate change. Um, but I think it's important to just sort of recognize the fact that the, um, that all of the concern that we have about fracking in the United States, which is legitimate and real and, and doing things as severe as causing Oklahoma to have a plague of earthquakes, uh, people's water catching on fire. I mean, it's awful stuff. Nothing compared to what's going to happen in the rest of the world, who has like, you know, uh, uh, anywhere between, you know, like five to 10 times as much proven natural gas as we have in a smaller landmass, too. I mean, when it comes to Qatar and Iran, um, like it, it's it's insane. 
Now, like that transitions into the thing that I wanted to talk about uh, with George Bishop that is one of the funniest things that I've come across uh, in talking uh, and doing anything for this podcast, uh, which is <laughs> Lay it on me. amazing. <laughs> All right. So you may have heard uh, about anti-Sharia law legislation being proposed uh, across the U.S. This is a big thing in 2017, especially, uh, uh, although it's obviously still going on. Um, uh, you, you, if you can, you give us a big, a brief sort of primer on this. Yeah. I mean, if you're in touch with like, you know, sort of like right wing, uh, you know, uh, not even fringe, but like, I mean, you know, as the, uh, the recent poll came out, uh, should Arabic numerals be taught in school? You know, like a majority of Americans say no, right. Uh, like, uh, this is this prejudice and, and insanity is not limited to a right wing fringe. It's, you know, part and parcel of the sort of American identity. Um, but there have been a lot of protests uh, and uh, rabble rousing about uh, Sharia law. Uh, Sharia law is when uh, Islamic scholars um, uh, deliver verdicts on whether something is or is not uh, permitted by uh, by Islam. And uh, and so there there have been a lot of uh, right wing activists who have been very concerned that Muslim immigrants uh, are uh, um, uh, promoting Sharia law, uh, that uh, they're following Sharia law and not the U.S. Constitution. I don't even know what that means. That's what they say. Right. Like uh, they're like the, the Constitution is the law in America, not Sharia. And um, uh, <laughs> this is just so. Yeah, this is gets so weird so quickly. It, it is and, and so many <laughs> yeah. states has it been i think 23 states yeah 23 uh uh sorry 23 bills were introduced in 18 states uh attempting to prohibit the practice of islamic religious law or sharia uh in u.s courts which like doesn't make any sense u.s courts aren't practicing sharia law um uh of the 23 bills introduced to state legislatures this year, uh, and that's of 2017, uh, only two became law in Arkansas and Texas. Hmm. And that is the connection to George Bishop uh, that we make here uh, because George Bishop's Geo Southern Energy uh, was uh, partnered with the Kuwaiti firm Arif Energy Holdings Company on uh, a 4.75 trillion cubic foot uh uh, natural gas uh, play in Texas. Okay. Uh, and uh, Arif on its website uh, describes itself as a Sharia compliant investment company. And, uh, and they have a, a picture on their, like a page on their website of their Sharia supervisory board. <laughs> this like panel of, uh, of guys. Uh, wow. Who, uh, who, you know, they, they proudly uh, proclaim, um, uh, uh, make sure that their business is Sharia compliant. So I was like, oh, I've never really heard of uh, Sharia compliant finance before. So I started looking it up um, and came across uh, 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 J.P. Morgan Chase has an entire um, uh, department uh, dedicated to what it calls Islamic business, which I think is a euphemism for Sharia compliant finance, because uh, I don't think that I think that the term Sharia uh, has uh, has gotten bad press. I mean, obviously. Um, uh, so like uh, uh, as uh, as this clip uh, uh, demonstrates, uh, uh, Sharia compliant finance is an unbelievably large uh, sector of uh, the global economy. 
Islamic finance is growing faster than regular equivalents in certain markets and is even being adopted by many non-Muslim clients. Islamic finance assets are currently worth $2.2 trillion worldwide and are set to hit nearly $4 trillion by 2022. And so, so one of the fastest growing sectors of the global economy is Sharia compliant finance. Uh, and one of the uh, major areas of uh, Sharia compliant finance or Islamic banking, as J.P. Morgan Chase calls it, is in energy industries uh, wow. because many of the countries uh, where these firms are located uh, are also are, are natively involved in uh, in energy exploitation. Um, so what is Islamic banking uh, or Sharia compliant finance? It really means uh, no sin stocks, as they call them. You can't invest in gambling, alcohol, or pornography. Uh, there's also a ban on collecting interest, which seems like it would be a major thorn in the side of anybody who wanted to do uh, uh, any any financial uh, uh, investment investing. However, they get around it very easily. Uh, and the, the example uh, that's often given is in the case of a mortgage. Um, so there can't be an, an interest rate on the loan. So what you do is you charge people rent. Basically, uh, 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 from what I understand, uh, in any Sharia compliant banking, there is uh, no uh, interest. There, there are no loans with interest, but instead you basically rent to own. So instead of giving somebody a mortgage with an interest rate, you rent, uh, the bank buys a house and then rents it to the person until they pay off the, you know, what is effectively a mortgage. Um, is the payout going to be basically the same either way? It's exactly the same, right? Uh -huh. Like it's exactly the same as a mortgage payment with interest. And that's, what's really, that's, what's really hilarious to me about, uh, this entire, uh, thing is, is like about uh, so like I found a, a quote um, from uh, an investment banker uh, based in Dubai who said uh, we create the same type of products that we do for the conventional markets. We then phone up a Sharia scholar for a fatwa. If he doesn't give it to us, we phone up another scholar, offer him a sum of money for his services and ask him for a fatwa. We do this until we get Sharia compliance. Oh then God. we're free to distribute the product as Islamic, right? So like, <laughs> it's 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 like unclear who they're fooling, right? Like that if this is just like deals between bankers who all understand that they're just changing paperwork so that it looks Sharia. Like the only person they're really attempting to fool is like Allah, right? Like, then, then, then there's, you know, it's not like there's a consumer who, you know, I, I mean, sometimes there, there is, right. But like often there's not like, uh, like in these energy dealings, like, uh, you know, George Bishop doesn't care if, uh, the, the, the firm is Sharia compliant or not. The, the only point that I want to make here is that like the, this, the, uh, the fervor about, uh, Sharia law that, that, um, um, uh, ideologues are, are propagandizing about constantly and trying to get these like fake bills passed in, in various states. Like it just doesn't exist. Like there, there is there, you know, like, it's, it's made up, right? However, the only place that, uh, Sharia law sort of is imposed on any, any practices, financial or otherwise in America, uh, is in, uh, you know, within the walls of like J.P. Morgan Chase and Geo Southern Energy. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, that's a pretty. That's a pretty amazing realization. Yeah, you know, like if only, if only the West Virginia coal miners knew that uh, <laughs> that that the job creators were involved in it, they would be so Sharia upset. compliance. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, uh, that that I thought was hilarious. And uh, and that sort of brings me to the end of, of everything that I had to say about George Bishop. 
So looking it ahead to next episode, we've got to choose our next billionaires. Yeah. Uh, let me open up the old random selector here. Edward Johnson, the second uh, Fidelity Investment CEO, heir of the family-owned business. That um, just sounds really, really uninteresting. Okay. Yeah. Heirs usually have, uh, you know, sort of eccentricities, though. So maybe he'll uh, be- hey, What's his name again? Someone. Edward? Johnson. Edward Johnson. Even his name is boring. I know. Okay. All right. Edward Johnson, the second. I'm assuming there's another- Edward Johnson. Edward Johnson, uh, Fidelity Investments. Yep. All right. Who's the next person? And the second one is Maggie Magerko. Oh, the heir and heir to and owner of 84 Lumber. Okay. Did you have 84 Lumbers where you grew up? No. No, we did. It was a big lumber store. I'm not sure if they exist anymore. Um, I think they might have been sold to a larger lumber conglomerate um i haven't lumber. seen 84 lumber is kind of interesting okay what which one do you want um uh, well you didn't seem to really like uh eddie johnson that's okay so. i can do eddie johnson i mean i you know it's this is our fidelity investments uh you know is a is a big thing that still exists uh so <laughs> you know i'll do i'll do i'll do edward johnson the second um uh don't feel like yeah. i'm muscling you into it <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I, you know, uh, I got some really good ones at the beginning in our first three, uh, first few episodes. And so, you know, you get, to, you can talk about lumber. It sounds more interesting. All right. Um, you know, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm doing you this favor and, uh, you can, you can pay me back in the future <laughs> at some point by taking the boring one. Okay. All right. I, I owe you one. All right. Well, as always, thanks for listening. Please, uh, think about liking or subscribing or writing a review wherever you listen to our podcasts um chad i hope you say shingles free for the next week thanks i'm gonna be super on top of things and uh super energetic next week because i'm gonna be feeling healthy uh and uh i'm gonna i'm gonna eat healthy i'm gonna exercise I'm going to take care of myself. <laughs> um, all right. We'll see you all, we'll see you all next week. Uh.